In John 6:35, we hear Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. And then later in the same chapter, in verse number 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And then verses 54 through 56, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains or abides in me and I in him. These might sound like strange verses to be the text or the focus of our study in the theology of food or of eating. But as we saw last Sunday, Jesus is the crucial part of the mosaic. He is the centerpiece of this mosaic of a theology of eating that we have been constructing. It is in scripture that Jesus Christ is presented as the archetype of what real life looks like. We believe him to be the focal point in terms of which all life is to be interpreted and evaluated. It is John who tells us in the first chapter that Jesus is the eternal and divine one who became flesh and lived among us, dwelled among us. Jesus understood life because he is the one. He is the Logos through whom all things came to be. He is the creator. He created all things. He is the center through which all creation circulates. As he told his disciples in the familiar verse to many of you in chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus causes us, if we will listen, to see life as being on a new path and a new trajectory, which leads us into deeper communion with God and with our fellow men. We do believe Jesus to be the Savior of the world, but what does this mean? In Scripture, we see there is the hope that all creatures will become what they were supposed to be, that their lives will overlap and participate in what God intended. There is hope that the memberships, all memberships in creation, will be healed and creatures will experience life more fully. Currently, we live, in a, we live a deficient form of life. What is needed is healing and the strengthening of memberships. Jesus, as the life, is the one who comes, who came to transform our lives and to repair the many memberships of which we are a part. Where life is broken or degraded or hungry, Jesus repairs it by reconciling, by protecting, and by feeding. The ministry of Jesus shows us, or it demonstrates, that the path to a fuller life is a practical journey. It isn't some type of philosophic or theological thing that's sort of abstract and out there. And so when we read about the ministry of Jesus in the Gospels, we see oftentimes it begins with eating. The Gospels frequently talk about him and eating, either his eating with people or his feeding of others. It is in eating together, what has been called table fellowship, that we can powerfully know and extend and share in each other's lives. 
Jesus was known for as someone who ate with strangers, something unacceptable in his culture. And he ate with outcasts. And he was criticized for this. But he opened up, if you wish, his table. When he would eat, he would eat with anyone that would eat with him. It was, in a sense, the giving of his life for others or to others. The goal of our life as human beings should be to have relationships with one another so that we can experience here and now the nature of the Trinity. As we've been seeing, it's one of the crucial pieces to this mosaic that we have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, but we don't sort of say, here's the Father over here and the Son and then the Spirit's over here. There is a mutual indwelling. And as human beings, we are in fact to be mutually interdependent. We need each other. It is in the person of Jesus that we come to see this. God entered into interdependent human flesh so that we might participate in his perfect communal life. In public worship, what we have just celebrated is communion, the Lord's table, or the Eucharist as it is known. It is central because it is here that we are fed by him to live the life he makes possible. In celebrating his death, we receive the nurture and training we need to become people who participate in his healing and reconciling ways with the world. So we saw last Sunday, this is one reason why Paul is so concerned with how the Corinthians have distorted what we call the Lord's Supper. Rather than celebrating their union and the fact that they are members of one body, they were doing it in such a way as to say, we are divided, we do not belong to each other. The next chapter, after 1 Corinthians 11, in chapter 12, verse 12, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. We belong to each other. And when we come together before the Lord's table, when we have communion, we are saying that we belong to one another. But again, as I said last week, living when and where we do, uh, Christian membership is seen as individualistic. It is seen as voluntary and, sadly, as occasional. This is not biblical. If we use Paul's analogy from chapter 12, the arm cannot exist when it is detached from the torso. Its connection is not voluntary. It is not occasional. It's not individualistic. It is, in fact, to be connected to the torso at all times. This is the nature of life. Joined together, we share a common life. Membership in the body of Christ. He who demonstrated what life is really to be. It is striking to me that in the early church, we read of them eating together on a regular basis. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. I would argue that in their eating, the early church tried to bear witness to the nature of Jesus living here on the earth. This meant that daily they would eat together. They would have common eating. 
and this was inspired and informed by Jesus' continuing presence with them. For them to remember Jesus was not to recall some, some event that had happened several weeks, months before. It was, in fact, to invite him to come and transform what they were doing. In other words, eating was the occasion in which the followers of Jesus could bear witness to his ongoing presence in the world. Jesus is here with us, and we demonstrate that by eating together. In John chapter 6, where our text is found, after miraculously feeding the 5,000, Jesus wanted them to see that he was not simply the provider of bread. He was the full meaning of bread. Therefore, he is the bread of life. The bread that Jesus is, is not like the manna, and this is an issue that comes up in chapter 6, because they remembered hundreds of years ago when Moses was in the wilderness with people, uh, manna was miraculously provided, and now this man has come and miraculously fed 5,000. This is somebody we want to be our king. This is someone we want to be in charge so that he can continue to provide bread for us. No. Manna is only for physical hunger. It can only temporarily satisfy it. But Jesus is food for healing, for transformation, and for the fulfillment of life. Rather than its mere continuation, which is what food provides for us, the bread of life gives us life. And it gives us common life, the life that we share in Christ. And it is communion life, life through Jesus Christ. The key word, as I mentioned last week, is found in the last verse, in verse 56, abides or remains. The eating that Jesus speaks of alters the relationships that make up our lives. It gives them a self-offering character that when we eat together, we share with one another. It isn't simply this is mine, but it is sharing with each other. And the call to eat the bread of life introduces the listener to a kind of eating where abiding is possible and transformative. I mentioned this again last week. Think a minute that when we eat, um, we destroy the identity of whatever it is that we eat. We retain our identity, but the food loses it. We absorb it, and it no longer is what it was. It becomes now a part of who we are. But when it comes to the bread of life, we do not absorb the bread of life. We are transformed by it. When we absorb something, it points to the end of a relationship. There no longer is a relationship because the other thing is gone. But participation points to abiding, a continuing relationship. In communion, we are to be transformed by the life of Jesus. And we are invited to extend his life in attention and welcome in feeding and forgiving, in healing and reconciliation. These are ministries that require that we think not first of myself, but of others. And my attention is to be to others rather than to myself. As one writer put it, remembering Jesus inspires us to remember others. Wiersbe, who's written this book on the theology of food, says, When people eat as those trained at the Eucharistic table, no life is simply fuel to be absorbed. All life becomes a sign and sacrament of God's love, 
a witness to the costliness and mystery of life and death. This is what we see in the book of Acts in the early church. We see that they were dramatically transformed by the work of the Spirit of Jesus in their lives. In the ancient world, perhaps more than in ours, there were forms of oppression and division, degradation and violence that marked customary eating and living. People did not eat with people who were not like them. These needed to be overcome. And Jesus, the early church, we see organizing a new way of existence. They are going to do things differently. And so they told people, they announced to people, they proclaimed, they preached the good news, the gospel of Jesus, that in him, in, in his church, people will discover the good news of healing, of freedom, of forgiveness, of reconciliation. And all of this points to new life in Jesus. And how did the early church demonstrate this transformation, that somehow they had been transformed by Jesus, the bread of life? Well, we're told in Acts that upon being filled with the Spirit, the disciples began to prophesy and preach in different languages. And while this event, the day of Pentecost, may seem strange to us, what we see, among other things, is the disciples of Jesus being hosts. They're being hosts to the people that they're preaching to. They are making themselves available to others by speaking the language of the people to whom they are speaking. The most obvious lesson, at least to me, from the day of Pentecost, is that it is the turning back of the effects of sin in the Tower of Babel, in which God, in order to prevent humanity from you know, getting together and doing whatever it is they wanted to do, God confused their speech. This is reversed on the day of Pentecost. Luke is the one who records this reversal, just as he does in Luke 24, on the road to Emmaus, or afterwards, Cleopas and his wife Mary Jesus breaks bread and their eyes are open, thus reversing what happened to Adam and Eve when they ate the forbidden fruit. Back to Pentecost. We, what we see the disciples, in essence, are saying is that they no longer lived strictly in terms of who they were. They're Aramaic, perhaps they spoke Greek as well, but there are people in the audience who speak a different language and the disciples by the Spirit are able to speak these languages and make themselves available to these people. They use the language of others to share the good news about Jesus. A lot is made about the miraculous speaking in tongues that occurred on the day of Pentecost. But I see other things that are equally miraculous, such as the way that people responded to Peter's preaching. They asked Peter and the others, what should we do? And the answer included two humiliating acts. You must humble yourselves, Peter is saying in essence. First, you must repent. You must change your mind about Jesus. You must change your attitude about Jesus. Remember, it hasn't been that long. Pentecost is 50 days after. It hasn't been that long that people were calling for the death of Jesus because they saw him as someone who needed to be put to death. Peter says, you need to admit that you were wrong and repent. And then he said, you need to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Traditionally, only Gentiles were baptized as they converted to Judaism. The audience very well could have said to Peter, we're already Jews, what do you mean? 
we have to become like we're Gentiles. We're not Gentiles, we're Jews. Peter says you must submit to baptism in the name of the one you previously rejected. You must admit that you were wrong. And miraculously on that day, 3,000 people repented and were baptized in the name of Jesus. This is just the beginning. I read verse 42 to you earlier from Acts 2. Let me read some more. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. What we find in the early church is a radical hospitality which is the logical, it is logical and it is the practical outcome of people who are abiding in Jesus and Jesus is abiding in them. The bread of life that they've eaten, it now has changed the way that they look at things. One writer has noted that what inspired the early Christians to attempt such radical hospitality was the practice of eating food together around the table with Jesus. To them, by the Spirit, Jesus was present with them, and therefore they wanted to eat together and share what they had with those around them. Being at a table to eat, sharing what they had already been given, the gift of food, remembering what they had been given through Jesus, this is what inspired them to be radically uh, hospitable to one another. But this goes all the way back to the beginning, to God's radical hospitality when he created and he sustained his creation. When we eat together in a Eucharistic way, we learn that we are not, that sharing and eating with one another is not an option. It is what we are to do. It is at the Lord's table that we learn, as Jesus teaches us, that life is sharing. And life is giving and receiving gifts from each other. Learning to receive these gifts and learning to respond is a lifelong task. If we are humble, it can become the inspiration for our own generosity. The the history of the church shows that hospitality has never been easy. In fact, there are those who argue what we find in Acts chapter 2 is sort of an idealized version. That in fact the church has struggled through the centuries to be marked by hospitality. The self-offering, the welcome, the sharing that are hallmarks of the Lord's table. When we come together for the Lord's table, interestingly enough, we may do it together and then we forget what the implications are. Of our sharing. Oftentimes, when people approach communion, they have a mindset of ambition or fear. We see this, at least the ambition, in Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. It illustrates that people are inclined to hold back in their self giving 
or to make a show of piety. Look at me, I'm helping others. When in fact they are holding back. Or as Jesus warned in the Gospels, people who are hospitable to those just like them are hoping that the hospitality will be returned to them. The temptation we must fight is to close the table to others, is to restrict the membership, is to keep guests out, except those of our own choosing. Such a, such a temptation was at the heart of the early Christian community. For all their sharing, and it is quite remarkable what we read at the end of chapter 2, they did not intend to share with Gentiles. This was going to be a Jewish feast. This, they were going to share with one another. Sure, they sold their property, they had all things in common, but no Gentiles, please. This is just for the Jews. But then we come to Acts chapter 10. And there we read of an Italian... Cornelius, who is a God-fearer. The question for the church is whether or not such a person would be welcomed to the table, whether or not such a person would be welcomed into their membership. In chapter 10, there are two visions. In the first one, the angel appears to Cornelius and tells him, send some men and go call Peter, and Peter will come and tell you the good news about Jesus. The second vision is to Peter. I find the second vision quite remarkable, certainly more remarkable than the first. Because in this vision, the Lord does not tell him, go to the house of Cornelius. Instead, what Peter has is a vision of food. If you want to turn there, it's in Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse number 9. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. Those who are approaching the city are the men that Cornelius has sent. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time, Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. Peter wakes up. And while he is thinking about what he has just seen, the two or the men that come from Cornelius get to the house. And the spirit says to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Why didn't God tell him that in the vision? What is the vision about, of food all about? Eating is a language. It is a lens through which a culture communicates and clarifies what its values are, its structures are, and its priorities. What we eat, how we prepare it and serve it, and who we eat with defines us as a culture. For the Jews, they did not eat non-kosher animals, and they did not eat with Gentiles. They were separate. For all the good news 
of the bread of life, they were keeping it to themselves. What Peter's vision suggests is that food differences was creating division, a division between God's Jewish people and his Gentile people. And God, rather than saying, listen, Peter, let me explain this to you. God gives him a vision of food and says, interestingly enough, kill and eat. We've seen that death is very much a part of eating. Something must die in order for us to eat. And Peter refuses. He says, I have never, I have never eaten anything that's not kosher. And this happens three times, showing us that it is, in fact, a significant event. Peter's standard would keep him, if not for this vision, from going to the house of Cornelius. In fact, when he gets to the house, he says to Cornelius, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. In other words, Peter's saying, I'm breaking the law by being here. I should not be in your house because you're a Gentile. What Peter and the early church needed to learn is that Christ does not allow us to show partiality. All must be received into the membership in the body of Christ. As one writer put it, hospitality is an expression of unity without uniformity. Through hospitality, community is built out of difference, not sameness. But how can this happen? This, this seems impossible. What is required is reconciliation. And so, in our study today, we will move from hospitality to reconciliation. You see, the community of faith, the church, is not simply a gathering of people. Like we have a group of people, you get a group of people and you say, okay, you guys are the church. You guys are the community of faith. There's no communion going on, and so therefore it cannot be a church. To participate in the body of Christ is not only to have Christ in me as the one who transforms me, it is also to have others in me and I in them. In such a way that what I know of life, what I need, desire, and enjoy in life makes no sense without other people. Let me say that again. I am to have others in me in such a way that what I know of life, what I need, desire, and enjoy of life makes no sense apart from the fellowship of life together. But a life of genuine fellowship is not easy. And it isn't simply that we refuse to give ourselves to others, though that may in fact be the case. It is in fact, in part, we find it difficult to imagine the intimacy of communion, the communion that God offers us, because our tradition, our culture, our lives, our histories are marked by fear and suspicion, arrogance and hatred. It's also because we are predisposed to hide who we truly are. We do not want people to know who we are, because if they did, then we would be ashamed. And so we seek to hide rather than to give ourselves and in the giving of ourselves reveal much about ourselves that we would rather keep hidden. Paul saw that in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, an entirely new way of conceiving and living out our relationships with others. 
in 2 Corinthians 5. I mentioned one of the verses last week. If, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, he continues, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sin against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Simply put, all relations are new because they are marked by reconciliation, not alienation. We are different, yes. We have differences, yes. But it is in Christ that we come together and we are to be one. And we see this in communion. We see it practice in hospitality. But what is needed is reconciliation. Reconciliation describes the peaceful ordering of relationships so that our life together can bear witness to the presence of Jesus. That Jesus is with us here today. And we are to be devoted to caring for one another. But, and you may be wondering at this point, um, I, I thought we were doing a series on food. Um, if we are not careful, we will limit the business of reconciliation to a new way of seeing our relationships with other human beings. That we are going to be reconciled with one another. But you may remember that what I just read from Second Corinthians 5 that God is reconciling the world to himself in Christ. In Colossians 1, Paul again speaks of reconciliation. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, that is in Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, not all people, but all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. Wiersbe in his book writes that for much of the history of the church, the church has suffered from a reconciliation deficit disorder. Part of this is because we have two mistaken beliefs. The first is that God only cares about human beings. And the second is that we, in fact, can do quite well while the rest of creation, if you'll pardon my language, can go to hell. And we don't care about the rest of creation because it's all about us anyway. God only cares about human beings. Well, from what we've seen in this series and what we've seen even before, these two beliefs are mistaken. The idea that God only cares about human beings, why is it that after every day of creation, God looked on his creation and saw that it was good? And is it not that creation is a physical manifestation of Trinitarian love? Job, in the last few chapters of the book, learns that God delights in his creatures and his creation. Even those that have no purpose, if you wish, no function, no utility. God's purpose is to reconcile all things to himself. Well, what about the notion that people can flourish while the rest of creation wastes away and languishes? We do not live on our own or alone. For us to eat, others must die. Without the death of others, we will have no food. For us to live and to live well, we need to know what death is. We have seen this earlier in the series. We must recognize that the Earth's m movement is 
an eating movement through death that also ends in death. We can only understand death properly through a Trinitarian perspective, the idea of giving of oneself for the benefit of others. We may come back to this uh, again, uh, because I want to move on to another aspect. But we need to acknowledge that our need to be reconciled to creation as the means of producing our food, in many ways, I think we don't get this because of our sense of alienation from creation. In fact, oftentimes what we find in the production of food reflects alienation and abuse. I would summarize this part by saying we need to be inspired to eat in ways that cherish food as a gift and as a blessing to be shared. To be reconciled is to be able to gather around a table with each other without shame, celebrating the gifts to each other that we are. Food and sharing are the results of gifts. And as a result, there is to be gratitude. And so we go from the Lord's table to hospitality, to reconciliation, and finally to gratitude. Let me read to you from Wiersma's book. To say grace or offer our benediction of thanksgiving over a meal is among the highest and most honest expressions of our humanity. In this act, we show that we are committed to taking a humble place within the world among each other and before God and demonstrate that we do not take our place and sustenance for granted. Here around the table and before witnesses, we testify to the experience of life as a precious gift to be received and given again. We need to remember and we need to recognize that to eat is to see, smell, touch and taste God's provisioning love. In the words of the psalmist that we've heard earlier in this series, taste and see that the Lord is good. When we give thanks for a meal, we acknowledge that it is in our mouths, with our mouths, that our senses have experienced the love of God. Have you thought of that? That as you eat, as you taste, you experience the love of God. But in order to have a desire to give thanks, to be grateful, requires that we first sense that whatever it is we're going to eat is worthy of gratitude. And in a culture that is prone to ignorance as to where our food came from, and yet, interestingly enough, for all our ignorance, we are marked by conspicuous consumption, why bother saying grace? Why bother giving thanks over something that we do not know? As those who have been reconciled who have new life and view life in a new way, we should delight in the wonder of God's creation. We should delight in the food that he provides, the provision. It is God's provision made delectable, made delicious. Just a reminder, in case you've forgotten, a decision to make the world this way was God's own decision. Now the Lord had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put a man he had formed. And the Lord made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. One could argue it didn't have to be that way. God could have been just as utilitarian as we are. Perhaps uh, have uh, plants that provided 
nutritional vitamins or packs that somehow you just open the pack and take a pill and, and there it is. But instead, we find different fruits with different textures and different tastes. This is what God has provided. So we should delight in what God has provided. And when we delight, it opens up our hearts and our minds to the wonder of God's creation. How we see the world will determine how we speak about it or how we treat it. A fast food culture like ours can have the effect of killing delight and reducing food to fuel. One could reasonably argue that where there is little or no delight, there will be little or no gratitude. The Lord willing, we will come back to this next week. Let me say a bit more before we leave the matter of gratitude, or more precisely, the absence of gratitude. In her recent book, uh, Christine Pohl uh, talks about four practices that sustain community. Her book is entitled Living into Community, Cultivating Practices that Sustain Us. Four practices, and interestingly enough, she begins with gratitude. In a section entitled Embracing Gratitude as a Way of Life, she relates, to live gratefully is not the same as denying the misery or evil around us. Gratitude involves knowing that we are held secure by a loving God and that the God we worship is trustworthy despite the nearly unbearable sorrow we might encounter along the way. A capacity to be thankful in the midst of hard times requires acknowledging that we do not know the whole story. Gratitude is a crucial way in which death and destruction do not have the final word and cannot finally define us. Wonderful words, but we should recognize that in this place and time, it is often countercultural to take the posture of a grateful recipient. Think about it. In our culture, if you are the one receiving, it almost puts you in a lower position. You are the one who is, and when you say thank you, you lose all power because apparently somebody else has given it to you. As a result, we oftentimes find it difficult to be grateful. Why is that? Let me suggest to you some reasons. The first is we live in the age of entitlement, in which a significant portion of our economy goes to what are called entitlements. In fact, even now, as the president and the opposition try to figure out how we will not go over this fiscal cliff. The issue is, what are we going to do about entitlements? Thinking that way has serious consequences. Paul Turnier has argued, no gift can bring joy to the one who has a right to everything. How can you feel joy if you think you have a right to it? How can it be a gift? It should be mine in the first place. We live in relative security in this country where we can assume that there will be adequate opportunities for good work and personal fulfillment. As a result, we come to believe that we are entitled to this security. This is quite different from the majority of people who live on this planet, the majority of people who have lived on this planet in the past. They recognize far better than we do that there is loss, there are setbacks, there are risks. 
in our society, we become dissatisfied because we are encouraged to become dissatisfied. Dissatisfaction of a, as a way of life is encouraged by a consumer's culture because it says you are entitled. And as a result, we are not grateful. Another reason I think that oftentimes we lack gratitude is our culture's understanding of self-fulfillment is often closely tied to individual achievement. People imagine that they are most fully human or successful when they are self-sufficient. Gratitude then becomes a very uncomfortable reminder that we need other people, that our lives are dependent on their gifts and generosity, and therefore we are not grateful. But perhaps more than anything, it is simply the busyness of life. Our lives are packed full with busyness and responsibilities. Gratitude and wonder are squeezed out. There's simply no room, there's no time to notice what we have been given. It may be that our busyness is tied to the notion that what we have or receive does not seem like a gift. I have what I have because I worked hard. I put in a lot of hours this week at, at the job to get this paycheck, to buy the things that I want. How can that be a gift? Finding time to be thankful to God and others often seems like a, a nice extra. That's nice that you say thank you, rather than a vital component of our lives. And if we are not careful, we are not grateful. In 2 Thessalonians 5, Paul wrote, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. This day, in a special way, we remember Ophelia. We prayed for her earlier, we will pray for her again in a bit. As she struggles with cancer, as the doctors have given her two months, It seems appropriate that we pray that God would heal her, that God would watch over her. But do we dare pray and be grateful? Let me read to you what I read earlier. Gratitude involves knowing that we are held, by, we are held secure by a loving God and that the God we worship is trustworthy, despite the nearly unbearable sorrow we might encounter along the way. A capacity to be thankful in the midst of hard times requires acknowledging that we do not know the whole story. Gratitude is a crucial way in which death and destruction do not have the final word and cannot finally define us. In an age of entitlement, we might argue that Ophelia is entitled to a longer life. That 50 years is... 50 years, but that perhaps she's entitled to more, and that her daughter, Mara, is 10 years old, is entitled to have her mother around as she continues to grow up, and that her husband is entitled to have his wife by his side through the rest of his life. But what we have is a gift. We are not entitled to anything. And when we recognize these things as gifts, 
we can delight in what God has given us. Amazingly, we have in our congregation today some of her high school classmates. I won't tell you how many years ago it was that they were in high school, but God gave them that time together, and God has given them the years since, and the friendship that has grown since then. This is something for which we can be grateful. And rather than thinking in terms of what we are owed or what we think we are owed, let us be grateful for what God has given us, for the gifts he has given us. Living in a time of entitlement, when you get that social security check, do you thank God or do you say, I'm entitled to this? When you get your tax refund, do you give thanks or do you say, I'm entitled to this? When you sit down to eat, do you give thanks or do you say, I worked hard for this, I went to the store, I cooked this food, I'm entitled to this meal. Or do you give thanks? You delight in what God has given you. This wonderful gift of food. Let's pray together. Our Father, we freely confess that oftentimes we are not as grateful as we should be. We find creeping into our thinking this sense of entitlement that we are owed something. And that what we have is rightfully ours. And in the process, we fail to see things as gifts. We fail to acknowledge that it comes from you. We fail to be grateful. But I think more than that, we fail to take delight. And just wonder at the gracious gifts you've given us. How gracious you are. How generous you are. What we have comes from you. Forgive our ingratitude. Forgive our sense that we are owed. Forgive our sense that we are entitled. And by your spirit, may we come to delight in the wonder of your gifts your provision made delectable for the food that you provide. In a special way on this day, we give thanks for Ophelia. For the 50 years of life you've given her thus far. For the gift of life. While we pray that her life would be extended, we would be remiss if we did not thank you for what you have already given her. And may she, may she, even in these difficult days, come to find delight in your gifts. To recognize the gift of life is coming from you. May she have a sense of your presence. Draw her and her family to yourself. May she come to see that Jesus is the bread of life.
I thank you, Father, that we could gather today to worship you. And as so often is the case, we come to give you worship, but we are the ones who receive so much from you. May your spirit go with us as we leave this place today. We pray this in Jesus' name.